0: Hey everybody, welcome back to the Next Move podcast. And today is quite frankly, the most important podcast that I have had the opportunity to record. Today we're talking about the economic impacts of COVID-19 specifically to India. And today I'm very privileged to have Professor Arun Kumar with me, who is a foremost expert on the black economy in India and has been studying it long before It became a hot topic during the demonetization era. And today we're going to be covering a few major points. Today, we're going to be talking about one. What is the impact on the informal sector? Our daily wage earners and our micro entrepreneurs are being hit hard right now. How do we ensure both from a health perspective that they get the essentials that they need and from an economic perspective that they can thrive after covid? Two. How do we ensure that corporates aren't hit too hard during this period? As you all will know, corporates play a huge aspect on our economic activity. How do we ensure that corporates are able to survive this lockdown? Three, what is the impact on the health sector? Where do we need to be investing based on what other successful countries have done? And how can we look forward after this crisis? And lastly, what, is the post-COVID India going to look like? Where will we be allocating resources? What have we learned as a result of this? And it's a great time to bring you in now, Professor. How are you doing?
1: Thank you, Arman. Good to be with you. Uh, Well, I suppose, you know, uh, this is a very difficult time for all of us, Uh, very trying times, something that we haven't experienced in our lifetime. So it's good that you're doing this program. Maybe we can clarify things that uh, may be in the mind of many people. Thanks, Arman.
0: Thank you, uh, Professor. And could you just tell the audience, if they don't know who you are, a little bit about your background and what your expertise is in?
1: Okay. So I was teaching economics in uh, Jawaharlal Nehru University in New Delhi, and I retired in 2015. And since then, I'm a chair professor in the Institute of Social Sciences in New Delhi and researching basically public finance, development economics, black economy, you know, public policy, and writing a lot and speaking a lot. I give roughly, on an average, two talks per week. But my background is actually from physics. I was doing PhD in physics at Princeton University, and then I decided to switch to PhD in economics. Uh, And I came back to India and uh, did a PhD in economics from Jawaharlal Nehru University. And while doing the PhD, I realized how important the black economy is, because it's almost as if it's central to the Indian economy. Every sector of the economy is affected by the black economy. So I started studying the black economy way back in 1979, 80, and I've been writing on it and speaking on it everywhere. Uh, And then I had a book which Penguin published on the black economy in India in 1999. And then I again wrote a book after the demonetization came, which this time was published by LF, which is a thin book, which uh, gives the uh, ideas about black economy, its analytics, you know, in a very short and simple format. And then I wrote a book for Penguin on demonetization, then another book for Penguin on the goods and Services tax, the GST, which uh, came in July 2017. And in all these writings, I have pointed out that how the unorganized sector in the Indian economy uh, gets impacted very badly, you know, as a result of the black economy, demonetization, and GST. And they are the ones uh, which employ 94% of the workforce in the economy and they produce 45% of the output. So if you have such a large segment of the economy, Um, you know, not functioning well, or getting impacted adversely, then the entire economy gets affected. And that's what we are seeing uh, today.
0: Yeah, and I think that's a great segue into moving into our first topic, and the first area that we should cover on the informal sector and on the unorganized sector. And like I had said earlier, they're being hit hard right now. As Everybody is in lockdown right now. There is no consumption. Could you, could you go into a little bit about the 1.7 lakh crore package that the government has put out, 1% of GDP? Can you expand upon, is this package enough? And who is this going to specifically?
1: So, you know, the, the first thing to realize about this uh you know, uh, situation that we are in, in the pandemic uh, lockdown, uh, it is that most production, except for the essentials, has now stopped. You see empty roads, you know, except for the, you know, workers who are trying to migrate. You know, other than that, traffic has come to a standstill. Most shops are closed. So things are not working, you know. So the economy has come to a standstill. So I argue that this situation is worse than in a war. In the war, you know, the production does not stop. People are not unemployed, you know, so demand is there, you know. Now the demand has collapsed and the supply has collapsed because all the factories and the offices, etc. are all closed. So production, trade, transport, you know, all of that is more or less shut down, except for what one can call the essentials. But even as far as the essentials are concerned, you know, look at agriculture, you know, the crop, the rubby crop is about to come in, you know. But uh, farmers are complaining <clears throat> that their producers are not able to move to the market, or they're not even able to harvest given the fact that you know there's a tremendous labor shortage, people are not coming out, they're staying in the homes, or the migrants from the urban areas haven't managed to get to the rural areas, who would have otherwise harvested the crop. So even agriculture, which is quite dispersed and where you know, the, the physical distancing that is required could be maintained, even there, the production has declined. Uh, second is when the crop doesn't come into the market, then it rots in the fields. So in other words, the prices of agriculture produced in the farms have collapsed. And that then impacts it because the entire agriculture is the unorganized sector. So you have unorganized sector in agriculture, you have unorganized sector in large parts of the economy, whether it's services or production, and all of them are getting affected. So in a sense, what is happening is that when uh, employment ceases uh, there, then income sees, you know. It's only when you do some activity that you get an income. And when your income stops, then you're unable to buy the stuff. Because these are largely poor people who buy on a daily basis or at best a weekly basis. So they can't stock up. Unlike the middle class and the upper classes who can stock up for a month or two months, you know, and uh, which they have been doing. And that's why the shelves have got emptied out. These unorganized sector workers have to buy every day or at best a week. So when they don't have incomes, they're not able to buy, and therefore there's a large amount of hunger that's going on. You know, people are trying to m- migrate for thousand kilometers, five hundred kilometers, twelve hundred kilometers on empty stomachs, you know, hoping that they would get food somewhere. So in a sense, there's a deep crisis as far as the poor in the unorganized sector are concerned, and that's why this 1.7 lakh crore package which the government tried to work out, that package became important because they said. We'll give uh, free rations, you know, uh, food grains and lentils and uh, so on to the uh, large number of people. They mentioned 800 million people. They give gas connections to the women, you know, so that they can get some energy with which to do the cooking. You know, then they had a package for the, uh, you know, the, the elderly people and other such, you know, deprived sections of the weak sections in the society. So in a sense, the government thought that this package, which was supposed to be for three months, would be adequate. But the problems that are coming in is that you know the loss of income of the unorganized sector is much larger than this. you know. And they were only spending on the essentials. They were not buying luxury items. They're not buying consumer durables or other things. So this package seems very small. Uh, if you compare it to packages elsewhere in other countries, like in the U.S., which is talking about a $2.2 trillion package, you know, uh, that's almost 10% of the GDP of the USA. Uh, so, in a sense, this 1.7 uh, lakh crore, which is roughly 0.85% of the current GDP, you know, that seems very inadequate. The problem also comes in because in India, implementation has always been a problem, you know. So, how do you implement this? How do you distribute this? Because our distribution systems are not very well geared. Our capacity to give gas uh, cylinders to the uh, poor women, you know, that's also not very uh, well, uh, you know, designed. Uh, there have been reports of corruption in that. Then the money that is to be transferred to the poor people, you know, through their accounts, the bank accounts called the Jandhan accounts, you know, that also large number of those accounts, you know, have, have seized because there be no operation in that. So how do they access the, those accounts? then the banking system doesn't extend all the way into the villages, you know. So there are banking correspondents, and then a lot of the banking correspondents were not functional. So even transferring money may become a problem. And then the biggest problem will be that those who are migrating from urban areas to rural areas, they would not have any uh, official card in the villages with which to buy the rations or with which to obtain these rations that may be given free. So in other words, implementation problems of a variety Will be very uh, severe in this entire program. And that's why uh, I have been arguing that what the government should do is just distribute free uh, these rations in the urban areas, wherever the poor people are, wherever the slum clusters are, you know, and similarly in the rural areas, because after all, India today has excess food grain stocks of about 50 million tons, you know. Uh, these stocks can be used to distribute to the poor people everywhere, So that they don't have to migrate, you know, they're they're assured of food wherever they are. So that would help, you know. So I think this package A is uh, inadequate for the poor people, for the large number of poor people uh, in the country. And B, its implementation will pose severe problems. So therefore, many people will not get it, you know. So these are some of the problems that I think we need to work at.
0: So I think you, you bring up a few really great points. And number one is people are migrating kind of the opposite of what we would like from a lockdown, because if you don't have food, everyone's going to go to the villages. It, it's, you can't keep people who are hungry and say, no, you stay where you are and keep hungry. And they are essential. It is essential that we are able to manage, you know, this crisis for them effectively for us to be able to ensure that this lockdown and its impact is where we want it to be. Now, on this 1.7 lakh crore package that we've given out, and on top of, like you've said, we've had these 50 million, 60 million grains of food stock for a crisis. On top of this, where should we be at? Like you said, the US is at 10%, the UK is going to 15%. Can we match this? Are we able to grow up to these numbers and what number do you feel we should be at? So, you know,
1: I call these survival packages. These are not really stimuli of any kind because industry is not running, businesses are not running, people don't have employment. So, you know, talking about a stimulus is not the correct terminology. What we should say is that these are survival packages. The survival package means that, you know, you are unable to survive in this situation where production has stopped, you know, where distribution has stopped, you know, and where, you know, getting food is difficult, you know, except maybe in the villages, you know. So uh, this survival package has to be as large as required to make the population survive. Otherwise, you'll have riots, you know, food riots, etc. will break out if we are not able to deliver to the poor people. And that's why I was suggesting that we should have in urban areas and wherever the poor are, including in the rural areas, you know, an expanded public distribution system, through which we give the basic necessities of life, like, for instance, at the present, you require uh, grains, you require lentils, you require some cooking medium, uh, you require uh, energy, and then you require, for hygiene purposes, certain items. These essential items should be distributed free to everybody at this point of time. As you said, 50 million tons of grains are lying idle at this point of time. They can be distributed to begin with. And then simultaneously, what the government can do is start procuring from the rural areas, you know, because as I said, the farmers, you know, are not able to sell because trade and transport is stopped, and the prices are collapsing there, which means the farm incomes are declining, and the farmers are also going to face a crisis in their life. So, if the government was to procure at the standard procurement price, then it would take care of the farmers' income, and then use that supply to supply to the poor people in rural and urban areas and therefore to take care of people who are at the moment hungry who don't have food etc so this twin problem of expanded public distribution and expanded procurement can be feasible <coughs> if we start procuring on a large scale in the rural areas and there are procurement uh, channels that have been laid out in india for the last uh, 40 50 years which should be uh, you know implemented immediately uh, now, as far as distribution is concerned, we need a lot of transportation and I find that you know the public transport vehicles are all lying idle all over the country. you know So in Delhi, where the Delhi Transport Corporation used to operate five thousand buses, those buses are largely idle at the airport, there may be a few hundred buses that the airlines used to use which are lying idle because the airlines have stopped working. So, so we could use these buses. And we could use police trucks and army trucks to try and distribute in all the clusters. And that will enable the poor people to get basic uh, items. Plus, they would then not move out of their homes because they'd be assured of distribution at their doorstep. So I think, you know, these kind of steps are very essential if we are to meet the challenge that is being posed to us of an economy which is rundown, which is probably working at less than 25 percent capacity where large parts of activity has ceased people's incomes have stopped so you know we have to be innovative we have to uh, think about how at this point to deliver and you know one problem that comes up in all this is that you know the the trade channels you know the the, the retail uh, stores they may try and charge you know a premium on uh, selling things that also needs to be taken care of otherwise even if we give uh, money to the poor people and if the prices go up in the urban areas, then they would not be able to buy. So that's why I'm suggesting that the physical distribution of food, grain, et cetera, the essentials that should be done through our expanded public distribution system. Otherwise, uh, you know, there'd be anarchy, there'd be you know food riots, and that'd be very difficult to control.
0: Yeah, I completely agree. And I, and I love this idea of using our unoccupied buses and transport vehicles right now to distribute this. But I really want to go into the cash perspective. Yes. It's 1% of GDP. Now, do we even have the resources available to increase this number? I know we're in a budget deficit already of about 3.5%. Do we have, can we increase this budget deficit? Or do we need to be maintaining a close eye on that to ensure that we don't go too far out, that when we do recover from post-COVID, we're not in a terrible situation in terms of our finances?
1: So, you know, our uh, fiscal deficit, uh, that 3.5 or 3.8%, which is uh, targeted this year, that is only the center's deficit. You know, that's not the entire public sector's deficit. If you add to that 3% uh, plus deficit of the states and, you know, what has been put on the public sector, another 2.5%, you know, our fiscal deficit have been, has been running at roughly about 10.5%. Rather than 3.5 percent, which we talk about for the center, so the fiscal deficit has indeed been quite large. There's no doubt about it. But this is not the time when we can worry about the fiscal deficit, because this is the time where the survival is at issue. You know, society uh, is facing a crisis, and the societal crisis needs to be dealt with. And for that, wherever the resources are, those should be found. And the resources that uh, need to be spent, you know, uh, are not that large. You know. I think if you add another 2 or 3% of GDP you know, to this for the coming uh, three, four months, uh, that's not going to create uh, that larger problem. And you know, people worry that when the fiscal deficit is larger, then there may be inflation. But today, with the large amount of industry and trade and transport closed, the possibility of deflation is much stronger than of inflation. Because demand is down. So except for the essentials, everything else the prices will collapse commodity prices are collapsing globally as you saw in the case of petroleum goods you know the price of petroleum have come down sharply because demand has come down so whenever demand comes down in a, a situation like this then all commodity prices drop and therefore there is a problem that you know even manufactured goods prices etc may begin to drop so you are worried about deflation more than the inflation and uh, raising demand uh, through a larger fiscal deficit would possibly prevent that from happening you know so in a sense at this point I don't think we should worry about the fiscal deficit rising uh, even if it rises by another two to three percent of GDP I don't think that's going to create much of a problem and one worry always is that if the fiscal deficit is very high international finance capital may punish you you know by withdrawing from here but now if you see globally everybody's fiscal deficit is rising you know i mean if the usa is going to spend 10% of gdp and uh, uk is going to spend 15% of gdp on this without uh, any uh, tax resources coming in then their deficit is also going to rise by 10% and 15% you know and here we are talking about you know raising it by 3% or 4% so uh, finance capital will not uh, actually punish any country because finance capital itself is facing a crisis so I don't think in this present situation, the worry should be how much would the fiscal deficit rise. At this point, I think it, the question is survival. Small businesses should not collapse you know, because they employ a large number of people. People should have enough food to eat. Otherwise, there'll be food riots and societal breakdown. So I think at this point, that is far more important than the deficit in the budget uh, that we are talking about. And one more thing you know, that's important in this context is that when the economy begins to revive after the pandemic, you know, what would be the shape of things, you know? Uh, and I think uh, it's not going to be easy to revive the economy even at that point of time because large number of small businesses are going to collapse. Many even big businesses which are highly leveraged, they could collapse. So unless the government comes out with a package, you know, to prevent this collapse, I think revival would be very difficult or very slow at best, you know? And I think this is a scenario that we have to think about right from now.
0: So I think, uh, thank you for summarizing that. I think it's a good transition into the next major topic of corporate income and ensuring that corporates can stay alive. Like you said, it will be critical for us moving forward and post this recovery. So what we, I, at least to my knowledge, we haven't seen anything come out specifically for corporates what are some of the strategies and you can correct me if i'm wrong there please but um, what are some of the strategies that we can employ to ensure that some of the hardest hit sectors can stay alive you know i know tourism is being hit hard the airline industry restaurants services businesses these are a great chunk of our corporates and who employ millions of people what kind of packages or strategies can we implement to ensure that they are able to survive this one-month, two-month, three-month period that we may be facing?
1: So, you know, uh, let's sort of step back a little. Uh, There are two kinds of expenditures that people make. One are called the essential expenditures, the other are called the discretionary expenditures. So tourism is a discretionary expenditure, you know. Uh, Some airlines travel is essential, but large part of it is probably discretionary, you know, you may travel, you may not travel, you may go for a vacation or you may just take a flight to meet relatives or something like that. Now, in a crisis like this, the consumer sentiment declines dramatically, you know, and when the consumer sentiment declines, you don't start doing discretionary expenditure, you know, you can always postpone it. If you wanted to buy a car, you need not buy the car right away, you could postpone it by three months or six months, you know, when the situation eases, you know, when your fears get taken care of i think at this point of time you know uh, everybody is very fearful of what is coming you know and there's always this problem that you know uh, the, our experience with the spanish flu in 1918 was that the second round came and the second round killed more people than the first round so i think people will be very very careful for the coming year or so uh, even if you gave them money, they're not going to spend on discre- discretionary spends. So your visits to restaurants, your you know air travel, your tourism is going to be down for quite some time now. It's not going to revive very soon. And I think these are the reports that are also coming from this industry, tourism industry, etc. They don't expect a revival very soon. So all that you can do is try and maintain that at a very basic level. You know, uh, that you know some amount of restaurant. Uh, some amount of uh, you know uh, travel etc revives soon after but to expect that there would you know uh, be a big surge after this i think that's not going to be on the cards so uh, this segment that you're talking about you know this segment is going to i think feel the pain for quite some time and uh, there's nothing much that the government can do except try and give them loans so that at least they can stay afloat partially you know or postpone the loan collection that the they have, you know, for a while, so they can stay afloat uh, uh, partially. But I think the more important thing is the more essential production that should come online very quickly soon after, uh, you know, the uh, lockdown is lifted. And that is where I think, you know, trade and transport are very critical. You know, if you don't have trade and transport from the manufacturing hubs to the consuming hubs, then the manufacturing will also not revive. So I think you have to get the uh, trade and transport growing. And in trade and transport, there's a lot of unorganized sector. You know, uh, you need a lot of unorganized sector labor also for trade and transport. So you have to see that the trade and transport, you know, which will connect the consuming and the producing sec- uh, uh, sectors, that, should not, uh, that chain should not break. Then you may also need a lot of supplies from abroad because now uh, supply chains are global. You know, a lot of things come from China. Uh, and China has become the global hub for supply chains, you know. So if China revives quickly and it begins to supply, then I think uh, consumption can be ramped up uh, and production can be ramped up accordingly. But if that does not happen, if your trade and uh, transport channels are not revived, then even manufacturing channels will not revive. So I think we have to focus attention on seeing the trade, uh, uh, transport and manufacturing uh, that begins to revive after this. Now, for that purpose, you know, as I said, small businesses and others, uh, banks will have to give adjustment. You know, if the banks don't give adjustment, uh, then working capital would not be available. If working capital is not available, then you can't buy raw material and you can't uh, employ people. So I think working capital requirements have to be kept in mind. And you have to see that uh, uh, those kind of loans are given in addition to whatever loans had been taken in the past. And you don't recall your loans. Uh, you don't do foreclosures of the assets, because if you were to do that, then a lot of, lot of businesses will just collapse. So I think uh, uh, we have to deal with this situation two to three months down the line. At this point, I think there's very little that we can do because these businesses are closed. So even if you give them some money now, it's not that they're going to be uh, you know use that for any uh, other purpose of manufacturing or trade or transport. So I think we need to conserve the fiscal space at this moment for survival. And then as the lockdown begins to sort of ease, then begin to think of, you know, uh, uh, giving working capital to businesses and trade and transport so that they can, you know, start reviving. So I think some kind of sequential strategy is very essential that you go from survival and then later on to using the fiscal deficit to boost uh, the economy, to start the production and trade and transport.
0: Yeah, that makes sense, and I think the the point of essentials versus non essentials is definitely you know a huge huge one here, and you know the second thing I really want to talk about yeah. in terms of corporates is like we said if corporates don't survive there are going to be some job losses. Yeah. Now and not just some, a lot of job losses. Now, how do we help corporates ensure that there aren't job losses? Do we Pay partial salaries for companies that need it. Do we, again, like you said, debt forgiveness or debt deference, like you had mentioned earlier? What can we do here to ensure that people maintain employment?
1: So you know, uh, businesses would have to uh, give salaries to workers even though production is not taking place, and that would uh, mean that their losses would mount. Now, some companies which have high di- high reserves. Uh, they can probably afford to do that. But large number of companies which you know, were already in trouble before this pandemic broke because the Indian economy is slowing down, uh, they don't have much of reserve. And those companies will not be able to do that without government support. So I think what the government should do is, you know, it should you know, immediately say that if there's unemployment, if people get fired by companies, you know, then the government would pay them, say, X percentage of their salary, you know. Uh, so that they can maintain themselves at a basic level. And that's why I'm saying, you know, that if there was free public distribution of goods and the essentials, you know, then people will stay where they are. And when the companies restart, then they'll be available over there. If we don't do that and people migrate to rural areas, then they would not be available for restarting production. And because these people would be running away out of fear, they're not likely to return very soon, even if the lockdown is lifted, because they would not be sure what may happen later so i think uh, maintaining populations where they are is very essential and that's why i'm saying we need an expanded public distribution and an expanded procurement because that would also mean that when uh, near near a company the workers who was living there they would be available there to restart you know but i think expecting uh, companies to make payments at this point of time when their entire output has gone to zero you know only means that their losses will mount uh, their working capital would get exhausted, you know. so I think uh, at this point, it has to be through the state rather than individual companies uh, trying to make this kind of effort, uh, except for very few companies which are uh, cash rich, which have large reserves. Only they can do that. But I don't think that will work as a strategy for the entire economy, because large number of companies are already facing trouble before this pandemic uh, broke out.
0: That makes sense. And Professor Arun, I'm very happy because you're helping me very much with the transitions, because that's a great segue into the state's role, into ensuring that this crisis doesn't go overboard and ensuring that everybody in India, especially some of the hardest hit states like Tamil Nadu, you know, UP, are, are maintained and are, you know, able to get through this crisis. So right. can, you, can you talk a little bit about the state's role in what they should be doing? How much liberty we should be giving to states to say, you know, spend as much as they need, create policies that are individual and specific to them. Could you expand on their role here? Yeah.
1: So, you know, uh, most of the social sector expenditures uh, go through the states, you know, whether it be education, health, employment generation you know or like the rural employment guarantee scheme the mgnregs you know those are functioning through the states uh, distribution of gas which is an energy etc also goes to the states so the states will have to play a very important role and therefore there's a need to coordinate policy between states and the center you know so the first thing that should be done is a council of chief ministers should be set up under the prime minister so they can all work in tandem rather than all working separately And there are big uh, issues of resources because their fiscal deficit is pegged at 3%. You know, they can't exceed that, you know, under the FRBM Act, you know, and there's always a pressure not to do that. So I think this FRBM Act has to be given up for the moment, you know, because at this point, it doesn't make sense to try and restrict to 3% of GDP or 3% of the state domestic product, you know, uh, for the states in the center. Uh, And coordination is very necessary. For instance, what happened when the lockdown was announced is that, you know, the chief minister of UP uh, promised to send buses to Delhi border to pick up people, whereas the idea of lockdown was so that people won't migrate. And large number of people then started gathering at the borders, you know, and large number of people started walking. So if there was coordination, then Delhi as a state and uh, UP as a state would have coordinated these policies. Similarly, you know, what kind of public distribution we'll have now, like, for instance, you mentioned Tamil Nadu, it's a very uh, well-governed state, so maybe that can do it efficiently. But uh, UP and Bihar are not that well-governed, and therefore there the public distribution system may be very leaky, there may be a lot of corruption, and that would need to be controlled. So if there's an overall council under the Prime Minister, then that could work. Secondly, there needs to be a uh, council under the... Cabinet Secretary of all the Chief Secretaries and all the DGP of Police um, in the states, so that they can look at the administrative aspect, you know, of where to pre- prevent corruption, how to coordinate, how to get the public gas- distribution buses to distribute uh, essential supplies, etc. So, in other words, the st- the states will function well provided there is one single channel through which the Chief Minister, the you know, the uh, Police and the chief secretary who runs the administration, they're all working in tandem under one coordinated uh, policy uh, framework. And within that, as I keep saying, at this point for the coming month or two months while the lockdown lasts, I think we have to focus on the essentials, uh, not uh, think about everything else. Because how to get people the essentials where they are, that is a function of the state. You know, uh, We will worry about other other things later on. Now, in this context, health is very crucial. India has a problem as far as the health infrastructure is concerned. It's very weak. We have a huge shortage of doctors, nurses, hospital beds, and so on. So we have to begin to prepare for that from right now. We have a shortage of masks. We have a shortage of the personal protective gear that the doctors need. You know, that's why a number of medical personnel are catching the COVID while treating patients, you know, because they don't have the protective gear. They don't have proper masks. So we have to ramp up production of these things, you know. And for that, the states uh, and the center must coordinate. Uh, This is a problem that even the USA has faced as uh, the governor of New York has been saying that each state is competing to get the, you know, uh, machines from China, you know. Uh, and they're bidding up the price rather than the centre doing it on behalf of everybody. So I think what needs to be done in India also is that the states need to procure these things through a centralised mechanism. The centre must coordinate uh, production of these uh, equipment centrally and then distribute to the states depending on the need. But the states have to ramp up their uh, medical facilities because bulk of the medical expenses through the states. And for that, I think what needs to be done is The states must, uh, uh, you know, locate wherever the hotels are empty, wherever the hostels are empty, because the colleges have shut down, universities have shut down, and try and see how they can be converted into isolation units, you know, how they'd be supplied with medical equipment, etc. That would be part of it. Now, to overcome the medical uh, shortage of personnel, uh, we need to uh, see and we need to give a call to retired people whether they would like to come on board, you know. And the second thing we could think of is doctors who are dealing with less essential, you know, medical things like, say, ophthalmologists, you know, we could see how they could be used in this fight against the pandemic. You know, there could be teams set up under pulmonologists, you know, with these doctors uh, working with them. You know, we could think of the medical students who are there in large numbers, who have done their second year, third year, fourth year. They have some primary knowledge of the medical field, you know. They could be trained quickly as paramedics, you know, and we could then also try and uh, train other paramedics very quickly, you know, from the nursing uh, staff, etc., so that we can then take care of these shortages. I think for that, uh, we must begin to act immediately. So these are all functions that the state governments have to perform, you know, on the health front, on the provision of essentials. And if they can do that, uh, then it's uh, something that we'll be able to tackle the resources that would be required for this would have to come from the center, because in India, as you know, bulk of the taxes are collected by the center. So whether it be most direct taxes or indirect taxes, they're collected by the center and then passed on to the states. So for the moment, maybe we don't need to spend on certain budgetary items, which can be spent later, but you know the budgetary funds can be diverted to these essential items, so that you know, we can take care of these things and the states are given funds to take care of these things.
0: Got it, and just to summarize really quickly what I inferred from what you just said, the main point of the states play a huge and critical role in executing strategies but it needs to be aligned under one central and council that make these decisions. So, so like you said, in the USA, there isn't a fight of one state against another. It's all in one coordinated effort to ensure that we can execute properly, especially on the essentials for both food, money and health care. Yes. Um, now, I, I want to talk about the importance of testing we've seen it in south korea we've seen it flawed in several countries like italy right can you expand upon the importance of testing first of all to ensure that we can contain the virus and once the lockdown finishes we can continue to contain further using testing second could you talk about the importance that we can get testing cheap or even free because we need to incentivize those who may have it, who may not be able to afford the expensive prices that we have right now, around 4,500 rupees, 4,500, to be able to take these tests because it's critical. Can you expand on that? Yeah.
1: So, you know, uh, this disease, you know, we have to identify who has the disease, you know, and then we have to try and isolate them from the rest of the population. Otherwise, we'll go into stage three, which means community transmission. So, testing has been found to be very important, and that's the way South Korea did. And if you can have large scale testing, then you don't need a lockdown in general. You can only then, uh, you then only need people to be isolated where it has broken out, you know, rather than the country as a whole. Uh, When you don't do enough testing, then you don't know where things are spreading, and you have to put a lockdown everywhere, which then has economic consequences and which also has other social consequences. But I think what has happened is that we were not prepared for this mass-scale testing, you know, uh, we had very few kits. Uh, so therefore, you know, India did not do enough testing. And then what happened was that uh, due to the panic of the lockdown, large number of people started migrating from, you know, wherever they were to other areas, and they were not getting tested. So, you know, you found people at the stations who had uh, COVID-19 and who were migrating, and they would take it back to the, with them to the villages. Now, in the villages also, even though now villagers have uh, said that they will not allow people from outside to enter you know, their villages unless they're tested. But the testing facilities don't exist there, so only they're testing for fever. And that's what happened earlier uh, also, that when people are coming in at the airport, they were only tested for fever. But there are people who are asymptomatic, you know, who don't show the evidence, but they actually have the disease in them and they then become uh, uh, people who spread the disease so for all these reasons you require to have much wider testing you know uh, everybody who comes from outside or everybody who boards a train has to be tested before they are allowed to board and uh, go to wherever they are going otherwise it spreads so i think uh, what the south koreans did was they said testing 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 and that's the strategy that who also adopted and i think that's what is being adopted more widely now in europe and america uh, where now testing has increased dramatically. But I think our problem in India is that our health infrastructure is so weak that we are unable to test enough people, you know. And that's why I think it is spreading. But one positive thing that I think uh, is there at this point, if a large number of people had already contracted this uh, disease, then you'd see a lot more chest infection, a lot more cough and so on, and many more uh, people going to the doctors and the hospital. But that kind of flooding of doctors and hospitals has not taken place. And that gives us the sense that maybe it hasn't really gone into a community spread that we were afraid of. And maybe we've tackled it. But for that, for us to be sure of that, we'll have to wait another seven, eight days, you know, before we know whether it has gone into the wider population and whether it's community transmission is taking place. So we need a lot of kits for testing. We must increase our testing, you know. Uh, and as you said, you know, if you charge 4,500 rupees per test, poor people are not going to go and get themselves tested. They'll, they'll try and hide it, you know. So I think testing has to be free. Uh, whoever wants, uh, whoever shows symptoms and the doctors recommend, they should be tested. And we have to have a right protocol for testing also. You know, if we uh, allow people to just go at random into emergency and start getting uh, tested and they carry the disease, then many of the emergency health personnel will also contract the disease. So I think testing also has to be through certain protocols. These should be all free and they should be in the places where people are staying so that they don't have to go. So I think just like the essential food supplies have to go through a public distribution system. I think essential testing also should be away from the emergency wards, etc. like what uh, some people have done uh, in say the U S and other places where people come in the car. Now poor people cannot go in the car and therefore we have to go to the areas wherever they are, and we have to try and do testing. And the medical personnel has to be fully protected with a gear uh, for doing those tests. So we have to ramp up these capacities for testing. Uh, the question is how to get enough kits. So I think uh, there is uh, a cheaper blood test that is coming in, uh, which possibly should be used uh, rather than this full swab based uh, testing which uh, is more time-consuming and also much more expensive and for which we don't have enough kids. So I think we must try and do an alternative uh, way of testing uh, much more than what we are doing.
0: Correct. And I I think you highlight very well how testing is hugely important. And I also want to bring up another point that I don't feel people talking about enough, but the psychological embarrassment that some people may feel if they're starting to get symptoms. And I feel this is crucial because we need to incentivize people and say, look, it is good if you come out and saying that you have some symptoms because it is very important that we know who has it and we know who you would have interacted with it so we can contain it. Can you expand a little bit on how we should, you know, incentivize people to come out and let us know and call the call centers and helplines that are up right now if they are having any symptoms?
1: So I I think uh, uh, what we need is much more transparency. You know, we should uh, spread the message that actually uh, 85% of people who get this disease, uh, nothing much happens to them. Uh, And, you know, of the remaining Only the elderly uh, top uh, 2-3% are the people who would probably die. Uh, Only about 10-12% would need to be hospitalized. I think if people know that, I think they'd be less fearful, you know. Uh, Also, I think the psychological impact, people feel that they're going to die, you know. I think that has to be dealt with, you know. When you deal with that, you know, that it's not as if that uh, if you get the disease, then you're going to die, you know. So if once you dealt with that psychological aspect, and, uh, and because of that, I think a lot of the communities, you know, are, are sort of uh, uh, are coming down heavily on people who have got this disease. They want to isolate them. They don't want doctors to live in their colonies. You know, they don't want nurses to live in their colonies. They don't want, you know, the health facilities to be close to their place. They want it far away from there. I think this has all created a psychology in the community I think if we had a lot more information and you know, there was a lot more transparency, and that is what I think the South Korean foreign minister was emphasizing three weeks back when uh, she came on uh, television. And she said, we managed to control because I think we were very transparent. We gave full information to everybody and people understood what it was. So I think the fear factor that has gone in, that has to be dealt with before we can even try and uh, get people convinced that they should come out and they should you know get themselves tested but i think the testing should be based on first level uh, where the local doctors they suggest that they need testing otherwise we'll be testing uh, needlessly a lot of people and we don't have enough kits and we don't have enough facilities so i think this also has to be graded so a we need to create the confidence in people b then people need to go to their doctors and the doctors would suggest uh, who are the people who need to get tested and then the testing should be uh, done for those people so if we were to grade it properly and have complete transparency and full information about the disease then i think we'll probably have it much easier as far as testing is concerned
0: that's you know that's definitely an amazing point i, I, want, I want to transition into you know kind of the concluding area of this podcast and i want to talk about you know, what does post-COVID-19 look like? What is the economic recovery that we're going to see? And throughout this podcast and, you know, through articles that I've read from you, you've seemed to state that, um, you know, we may not see a fast growth after this because of the delay and the length that it will take, especially for non-essentials to recover from this. But my initial thought was, and please expand here, that... People will, as soon as this lockdown is over, everybody will want to get back to normal life, go to restaurants, you know, overindulge on consumption. Those who can consume. But can you kind of provide the argument of what you think, why we're going to see a slow economic growth once we recover, or what is your thought on this?
1: Yeah. So you know, uh, people say that we would have a V-shaped recovery because. You know, people say that after all, the factories are there, capital is there, offices are there. People just need to go back and work, you know. And once they begin to work, then incomes would be there. And then once the incomes come, then people will just be able to spend the, the thing. But I think what we need to look at is the psychological impact of something like a pandemic, you know, where there's a fear factor that has entered. In normal times, we don't think about, you know, what we're spending, you know, uh, what we are buying, etc., but in a situation like this, we are all locked up, you know. I've heard uh, friends say that, look, with what little life can go on, we don't need to consume so much. And one of the factors that is coming in into the play at this point is that we have been uh, decimating the environment. And one of the consequences of that is a disease like this because animals don't have to, you know, the forest to live in. So they're coming in more close contact with the human population. Uh, And that is what is leading to these uh, viruses uh, breaking out uh, so often. This is the third or the fourth virus that we've had with a major, you know, thing like from starting with Ebola and SARS and MERS and Nipah in Kerala, you know. So in the last 20 years, we've had these breakouts. And one of these will be a very big one for which, you know, human um, bodies don't produce the antibodies. So I think we'll be worried about the environment. We'll be worried about consumerism. And given the sentiment at the moment where you know we are all concerned about what will happen in the future, I don't think consumption will revive very quickly. Secondly, this situation, as I said, is worse than in a war. We are you know, at, say, minus 60%, minus 70% rate of growth at the moment because everything is stopped. Now, in a situation like this, working capital gets destroyed. A lot of businesses are not able to come back on. People in India who migrated from urban areas to rural areas, They're not going to return immediately. So therefore, you know, production will not start in a big way, uh, you know, everywhere. And consumption will definitely not start as far as the, you know, the discretionary consumption is concerned. You can always buy your car later. You can always buy your shirt later rather than today. So, you know, many people will not uh, start consuming as if, you know, things are now back to normal. And this idea that we are back to normal, you know, there's a fear lurking that there could be a second wave in another four, five months' time. And as the Spanish flu showed, the second wave, people died in larger numbers than in the first wave. So that's also a fear that would lurk in the mind of a large number of people, that, you know, the future is uncertain. And when that is the case, people don't go out that much, people don't spend that easily, etc. So my feeling is that coming out of what I call a depression at the moment, because the uh, the rate of growth is not just minus 1 or 2% but you know because everything is shut down it's minus 60 70% at this point now to come out of that will take time and will depend on what the shape of the curves are in the coming uh, months uh, people are expecting you know that maybe things will not revive uh, till august or september you know if even if we are able to reach the apex in the coming 10 15 days in india people are saying that you know there may be two or three waves you know like for instance in singapore the second wave has come or people are worried that in China, a second wave may come now as people start going back to China from outside the world. So, you know, all these factors will create an uncertainty for the coming two to three months at least. And when uncertainty lasts for that long, I don't think the behavior pattern goes back to uh, pre-pandemic stage very quickly. So consumption is not going to revive that quickly. Uh, Production of large number of businesses is not going to revive that quickly either, so I don't see a V-shaped recovery as some people suggest. I see a very gradual process, and if it lasts for three, four, five months, then the depression becomes quite deep. And once that depression becomes quite deep, the investment climate is poor, the consumption is very low, uh, exports will be low, you know, because large number of economies have been closed down. So even though China may be recovering now, production may be reviving. But exports will not revive very fast because the countries that import from it, they are under lockdown. They are not consuming that much. So the demand from China will be much less also. And it will not be easy to substitute for that export demand with internal demand. Because consumption is not going to revive that quickly even in China. So my suspicion is that at this point of time, we are looking at a very slow recovery uh, from this entire thing. Rates of growth will be largely very negative you know, maybe minus 8, minus 10%, you know, in this coming year. And then, you know, maybe we are th- uh, looking at a recovery in two to three years time, because the stimulus will not work in these situations, you know, even if the government try and stimulate production, they try and stimulate consumption, I don't think it will happen very quickly, given that uh, the sentiment of the consumers and the, you know, investment climate for the producers, those have taken an adverse turn. You know, when production comes down by 60-70%, you know, uh, as has happened for many industries at this point of time, then, you know, you have large spare capacity. And when you have large spare capacity, you will never invest I- in that situation. So, a re- revival of investment will take even longer. And when revival of investment takes longer, then the growth rates uh, turnaround takes much longer. Employment generation takes much longer. So, I think, you know, it's a, it's a pretty uh, nasty situation that we are faced with where even government's action in trying to revive demand will be very slow. Uh, stimulus will not work very quickly as would happen in a normal business cycle. This is not a normal business cycle that we are faced with. It's much worse than what the 2007-8 global financial crisis is. It's a much worse situation than in a war. you know. So it's, it's something entirely new, and governments will have to learn to deal with it. People will have to learn to deal with this situation and try and devise methods by which one could then try and turn things around.
0: Thank you for that. And just to quickly summarize again what you've said and to give a little bit of an explanation um, to any listeners who may not know, a V-shaped curve indicates that we will have a fast recovery in, if you picture a graph of V, as quickly as we've come down, we will quickly go back up. So um, I think Professor Arun is, you know, very eloquently has said that it's going to take a long time. And you brought up a great point that I never even thought about, the environment perspective. And this could be one potential benefit in the long, long run that everybody will see, look, this is what we are doing to our environment. And I think it's up to global bodies and global enforcement authorities to ensure that countries are maintaining you know, the environment and ensuring that we are not doing excessive harm, because this is what can happen. And like you said, we're lucky enough that right now we're only saying 2% is dying. But you never know, another virus could come up and it could be much, much more deadly. So we definitely need to take care of the environment. And that's a great point. I'm very happy you brought that up. And like you said, consumption will stay down because people will be afraid for a little bit to go back out. The second thing I want to talk about, and the last point I want to bring up, is yeah. going off of what I said, where are we going to be looking at in our post-COVID recovery? Picture we're two to three years down the line. Are we going to be investing more in healthcare? Are we going to be investing? Are we going to be saying, you know, banks need to have higher cash reserves, enforcement of gig employers like Ola Uber, ensuring that their contract workers have better insurance packages in, in the case of a force majeure? Uh, like we're seeing right now? Um, And are we going to see a more shift toward localization of manufacturing and uh, uh, that's opposed to what we have been doing, like you said, and being part of a more global economy? What are we going to see, you think?
1: So I I think uh, if we are uh, looking at very slow recovery and a depression uh, for the coming year and then very slow recovery after that, I think a lot of attitudes will change. Uh, One thing the nations will learn is that we should have more localized supply chains, as you said, you know, rather than depend on countries like China or other countries, you know, for a lot of supplies. Because that, if one country, you know, has a problem, then it can lead to a problem everywhere else. So there would definitely be a much greater move towards localization. Secondly, you know, country like, uh, uh, you know, UK and others where the social, uh, you know, medicine is very, very well practiced. The social structures for medical requirements are, you know, uh, quite strong as compared to the USA, where it's all privatized and where, you know, it's very expensive. I think we will move towards much greater social expenditures on the health systems. You know, Uh, a country like India would need to spend a lot more on health. We've never crossed 1.3 percent of GDP on public health. We'd need to go to at least 3 percent. You know, we need to provide a, a medical infrastructure of hospitals and better trained doctors and nurses and so on and a lot more of them so that in case there's an eventuality, in case there's another pandemic, we can deal with it much more uh, effectively. So globally, I think expenditures on health will go up. Thirdly, I think research in health areas is very important and say in the USA, it had gone down quite substantially. We'll need to spend a lot more on uh, research on health areas so that we are much better prepared, you know, uh, for these kind of things. Uh, but I think more fundamentally, as you said, people's attitude towards consumerism, that I think may see a transition, you know. And therefore, consumerism would change. And therefore, the structure of production uh, in the economy may also change, where we consume less and uh, we then pollute less. Uh, that could be a very major change. So I think the the major changes that are likely to take place in a post-COVID thing, you know, say a year and a half or two years down the line, could be on consumerism, could be on environment, and could be on more localized production rather than a very globalized uh, system of production. Uh, I don't think it should mean that we shut our economies. You know, it doesn't mean autarky, but it means greater self-reliance, at least as far as the essentials are concerned. So that those supply lines don't get uh, damaged in, in a pandemic or when there's a crisis. So I think these are the three or four things that I think uh, I foresee in the coming year or more.
0: Great. Um, I think this is a great place to close up. Uh, Professor Arun, I want to thank you so much for the opportunity and spreading this expert information, which is what we need right now, as opposed to the current spread of misinformation that's going about. And that is the primary purpose of this podcast. So I want to thank you so much for being uh, with us today to do this,
1: well, thank you, Arman, for uh, taking the trouble of uh, doing this podcast. You know, I'm very happy that you asked the relevant questions and you could provide some answers. Maybe if this helps, you know, that would be one of the purposes for which you know social uh, you know sectors operate in, and the social sectors would also you know help out in these things. Thanks a lot for doing it.
0: I hope so too. Thanks again and thanks to everybody for listening. If you have any questions, just please feel free to reach out. And yeah, thank you so much for listening. Make sure to tune in to the next one.